Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, where we are learning about science, creativity, more material across the board, multidisciplinary, and there's always variety on here. Subscribe if you haven't, like, share, review, whatever it might be. On this episode here, we have the author of the book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. It's Professor Peter S. Alagona. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Armin. I'm glad to have you on. You are an environmental historian, conservation scientist, nature, culture, geographer, and professor of environmental studies as well as history and geography at the University of California, Santa Barbara, which I think is very cool because inside information, I attended the University of California, Santa Barbara, and think it is super duper. Now, you're at that institution. Can you tell us all why it is maybe great? Well, you know, I actually didn't know that, Armin, but it's good to meet another gaucho for sure. Always good to meet another gaucho. UCSB is a great place because, uh, first of all, it's on the beach. Uh, but second of all, it's got a really great community of scholars doing a wide variety of uh, working on a wide variety of different topics, students interested in a range of pursuits. And in particular, we've got really strong programs in ecology, environmental science, geography, marine science and related fields. Uh, and so for me, it's a, it's a really great place to call home and a really great place uh, to incubate projects like the one we're going to talk about today. That's cool. Yes, I did notice when I was there, marine, the Marine Biology Center or that corner, you felt like there's material going on and it's very specialized for that. And also some of the science, chemistry and whatnot. I was biochemistry. That's where I was in the area. Very cool. Now, before we get into some of the material from the book, how did you end up where you currently are, why not accounting or meteorology? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, so, you know, I was uh, not really introduced to many uh, outdoor pursuits or environmental issues and discussions as, as a child. Uh, but later on, as I started to grow up, I realized that I was living uh, on the edge of an expanding suburb in a place where uh, some of the communities there were relatively new, uh, where not too long before there had been natural communities of plants and animals, natural ecosystems, uh, and where just a mile or so away from me, there were other natural uh, ecosystems and areas that were being gobbled up by, by development. And so I became interested uh, in this process and what was driving it and what were the, the uh, consequences of it and also the potential uh, advantages of it in some cases. Uh, but as I started to explore that, as I got a little bit older, uh, I came of age and went to college during a time when there was a lot of controversy over conservation, in particular the conservation of endangered species. And so I, I was kind of watching the evening news and reading the, the newspaper. This is back, you know, in the early 90s uh, or so, and watching and, and reading about all of these debates where people were fighting over the conservation of species that uh, in many cases um, have been uh, popular targets of conservation popular objects of conservation just a decade or so earlier. And so I started to wonder how we got to that point where there was so much conflict and controversy over things that people had not too long before uh, pretty much uh, agreed on across the board. That got me into this topic. It got me thinking historically, and it got me thinking about the relationship uh, between ecology, geography, uh, environmental science, and of course, history. Hmm. That's wonderful. There's a combination of multiple categories, history, geography, and I like that a lot of geography was included in the book because I think about regions and what they represent. Some of the areas you talked about where there's a hotbed of activity, it made me think of areas where there's been also a hotbed of activity for people. We might as well be animals joining along in the process of sorts. Now, into the elements of this book, the accidental ecosystem. Why is it accidental? Was this not all planned? Another great question. Let, let me just take a, a quick step back and say that you are exactly right to point out that uh, oftentimes people like to live in places where other creatures like to live as well. And that goes way back in time, uh, long before European colonization, for example, of North America to deep histories of indigenous communities on this on this continent, people tended to go to places and found communities uh, and prosper, found thriving communities in places that other animals 
Uh, and plants as well tended to find uh, conducive to their survival and their thriving. Indigenous communities in places like California, uh, for example, often were situated in some of the most biologically productive and diverse areas around. And the reasons for that were relatively simple. These were often areas with uh, year-round fresh water in a seasonally arid climate like California. Uh, they were areas uh, with a lot of different kinds of species that came through uh, migratory species or endemic species that lived in these places and nowhere else. Uh, and so these were hotbeds of biological activity, uh, as well as of cultural history and cultural development. And that goes not just for, for California, but for uh, cities really across North America, uh, modern cities that were founded in areas where uh, large indigenous communities have, had uh, been based uh, previously, and in some cases continue to be based, uh, and in places where it was easy to uh, extract natural resources from the environment to build cities and to build uh, wealth and to engage in trade and, and commerce of a variety of different kinds. So you're absolutely right, and that's a great place to start. You know, you asked why uh, accidental, why accidental ecosystem? And the simple reason for that is that this book talks uh, about and explores an ecosystem that really was never kind of supposed to exist and that no one really would have predicted uh, would come to be in the way it is today, even just several decades ago. You know, if you go back a few decades and you look at what people uh, were saying about cities and ecology and environmental science and other fields, uh, what you find is that most people agreed that cities were agents of destruction, uh, that they made uh, the landscape more homogenous, more boring, uh, and they really uh, kind of obliterated the native wildlife uh, that was there and native ecosystems that were there. And that is true. That is still remains uh, true. That is largely the case. And urbanization around the world is a major driver of the loss of biodiversity and the endangerment of species. However, it is also true that cities, in addition to destroying ecosystems, also create them and create them in ways that no one really would have predicted many decades ago. And that in some cases have resulted in real surprises, not just for the people who live there, but also for the scientists and other scholars who study these places. When I was reading the part that connects with each city and many cities were mentioned where there's a lot of activity, it related with, I was telling, I told people maybe two or three months ago, I was talking about how there are certain areas that people have gone to. If we destroyed all the homes there and we restarted humanity, people would go back right to the same place because these are the spots where there's, you feel more alive, water, maybe the view, some green, whatever it might be. It's like we're following, now that I've read your material, the animals that made the same decision at some point, like that's where we're going to be because of the great decisions. And the value is innate as compared with some other places that you mentioned where we've kind of forced it and it's not really meant for life, but we're like, we're going to make an area of tourism here. And it's like you're countering or battling with nature. What are your thoughts on areas where it's just meant for life and areas where it's not? So I think one important thing to recognize is that uh, biological diversity and productivity different kinds of species, rich ecosystems exist all over the place, including in many areas that most people don't think of as harboring a lot of diversity and richness, including, for example, uh, deserts in places like the American Southwest. It is true that in biologically rich environments, like where current day uh, Los Angeles or the Bay Area is, or current day New York, for example, uh, these are places that wildlife, that wild creatures have always flocked to for, for a variety of, uh, of reasons. Different kinds of ecosystems, the meeting of different si systems. In New York, for example, you have the meeting of saltwater and freshwater. You have the meeting of land and sea. You have uplands and lowlands. You have tidal ecosystems uh, and marshes. You also have species that are more typical of New England on the one hand, and of the mid-Atlantic on the other. So this is a place where these different kinds of environments and climates uh, merge and create what is called an ecotone. So a, a transition area where species from different kinds of regions uh, meet and create uh, exceptional richness. That's all true for places like New York and Los Angeles. Uh, but weirdly, it is also true for places like Las Vegas. 
you know, Las Vegas has no good reason for being where it's at, except that it's just over the border of Nevada uh, in a state that allows uh, legal gambling uh, that's relatively close to the population centers of Southern California. And that was a major driver of its growth, of course. But in addition to that, uh, Las Vegas has a really fascinating natural history. Uh, it was one of the few areas in the Mojave Desert where there was uh, reliable fresh water year round uh, due to the spring mountains that are near there. It had extensive lush meadows and it was very close to the Colorado River, which was a flyway for migratory birds uh, and kind of a beacon for wildlife from throughout the region. And so the result is that even though we think of a place like Las Vegas as being like the plastic opposite of everything we think about when we think about nature and natural environments and pristine ecosystems, Las Vegas is actually in an area of tremendous biological richness and diversity. You know, several years ago, when uh, a habitat conservation plan was created under the Endangered Species Act to protect biological diversity in and around uh, Las Vegas and Clark County, which is Southern Nevada, the final plan ended up protecting more than 200 species of concern living in a wide variety of environments from desert salt flats all the way up to the subalpine in the nearby Spring Mountains. And so this is an example of a place that you wouldn't think about uh, associating it with nature, but actually is a place where people have flocked and has a tremendous amount of natural richness as well. It was a little bit surprising when I saw that, that there was meadows and it's, you don't picture it, but then, then I thought to myself, okay, there's a period where that occurs, then there's a dryness, then it's almost like humans have tried to recreate some sort of the meadow it's like a different form of evolution where it's not really authentic, let's say, but we're going to bring it back uh, as it might be before. It's funny how we uh, connect with the earth and then add our two cents to everything as we pass on. You know, I think one of the things that I thought a lot about um, as I worked on this book is exactly this idea that you've just uh, introduced, this idea of authenticity. And I think if you go back to, you know, like go back like 50 years or 75 years and think about what, you know, ecologists and wildlife managers were talking about uh, back then, you know, authentic authenticity meant to them wild creatures living in wild places. Now we have a wide variety of wild creatures, more than anybody really expected, living in human dominated ecosystems, living in highly altered environments living in novel ecosystems, including in cities. And so I think what that tells us is that we need to be a little bit careful about ideas like authenticity. You know, a songbird that flies through a city on its migration, or a small mammal or a medium-sized mammal, like a coyote that wanders uh, into a city and that finds a home there, isn't asking themselves, is this an authentic place? Is this an authentic place for me to be? That's not what they're asking themselves. <laughs> what they're asking themselves is, what are the advantages of being here? What are the hazards? What are the opportunities? Is there food? Is there water? Is there shelter? Uh, am I in danger from predators? Uh, these are the things that wild animals are navigating as they navigate the environment. It's called habitat, space and resources, opportunities and hazards. And so when you think about it that way, uh, animals are thinking about a range of issues that have very little to do with what you and I think about as being quote unquote authentic nature. They're living their own life. They're not making the same decisions. I saw a video of a stork last week where the stork has three birds in a nest and then drops one off to get rid of the weakest one. And if humans did that, we might look at it and say, oh my gosh, how could you? But for them, it's like, okay, I had three children. Uh, one is the weakest and off it goes. They don't think the way we do. That's just how it works. Fair. Now, the city's concept is a wonderful one. I am in Los Angeles, and you're in Santa Barbara. Wonderful, both locations. When we think of cities and where we are located, do we think of a wide variety of animals interacting with us, or should we be thinking that we as humans have cleared out most of them? So there are several different things going on, I think, when we want to think about urban environments and the kinds of creatures that occupy them today. 
one thing that's happened is that the kinds of creatures that are intolerant of urban environments, that have a hard time making it there for one reason or another, tend to get weeded out uh, pretty quickly. And you can think of the urban environment as having like a series of filters, if you want to put it that way. Uh, you know, the built environment itself might be a filter. Sound noise pollution might be a filter. Chemical pollution might be a filter. Artificial nightlight might be a filter. Uh, there are a wide variety of creatures that are extremely dependent on the habitats, the natural habitats in which they evolved. And their ecology and their biology is dependent on having those aspects of those natural habitats that they are adapted to, that they have adapted to over long periods of time, often through evolution. So when you transform an environment, when you uh, fell a forest and you plant uh, an orchard uh, or you develop a farm or maybe even build a city, what you're doing is transforming the environment in ways that many creatures simply cannot tolerate because of the way that they are evolved. However, there are a range of other creatures that either do very well in those spaces because something about their biology, something about their evolutionary history enables them to do that. Or there are a variety of additional species that can kind of tolerate those environments, even though it's not really where they're most at home, they can tolerate those environments or at least living on the edges of those environments because what they do is they use those edge spaces to gather resources that are available in cities while then retreating to or going back into more natural or green spaces uh, when they need to, when they need to take cover, when they're breeding, when they're raising young, doing things like this. And so if we think about those groups, there are really three groups, right? There are animals that we call uh, urban avoiders. They're the ones that tend to avoid urban environments, right? Uh, think of like a uh, puma, for example, is, is a good example of that. Even though we have some pumas around Los Angeles, they don't do well in the city, right? Uh, we have urban uh, exploiters. They're the ones like the pigeons and the crows that do really, really well in urban environments. And we can talk about why that might be a little bit more if you'd like. Uh, and then there are the ones that are kind of in the middle. They're the urban adapters. And they're ones like raccoons and coyotes, uh, hawks, animals like this that can live in urban environments because of the resources that these places offer, but they tend to need some aspects of natural environments and they often actually migrate between urban and natural spaces or even commute between those spaces on a diurnal basis, on a daily basis, to enable themselves to harvest resources while also avoiding hazards. And so what you can see is that urban areas don't have a single effect for wildlife. They have diverse effects for different kinds of creatures. And that's why we see the creatures that we do today in the cities where so many of us live. Some have some adaptation, some have more adaptation, and some are automatically ready to go and exploit the, the moment as it is. One thing I liked is that with different animals, you detailed not only where they apply today, but also where they have applied uh, in recent times how many horses and cows and pigs existed and how they were looked at too. I like the description of pigs and how they were sort of the lowest common denominator. If we need them for something, okay, we'll use them. They're kind of uh, get it done type animals for purposes. And then horses lasted quite a long time and still they're sort of there. I saw some a few days ago, which was great to see. What has been, um, if we had like a graph what would have happened to uh, horses and pigs and cows in the past hundred years in the cities? So there's a, there's a history here of, you can think of it in waves, right? So when European settlers arrived in many of the areas uh, where indigenous communities were thriving and there were large populations of, of uh, wildlife in those areas, uh, pretty soon after that, uh, in many cases, many wildlife populations particularly either ones that were valuable and useful for food or for other kinds of resources, or ones that were inconvenient and deemed pests, uh, and these included a wide variety of species, um, those were kind of eliminated pretty quickly from the areas that, that became cities and from the hinterlands around them. So that in many parts of, of North America, 
by the 19th century and some areas earlier, uh, wildlife had been really cleared out of a lot of areas that were becoming centers of population. In the years that followed, particularly in the 18th century and into the 19th century, many cities that were developing at that time filled up with domesticated animals. And the reason for this was that at that time, particularly as you get into the 19th century and the Victorian era, we didn't have uh, the kinds of animal welfare and public health and safety codes that we do today. Those came later in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, and so people lived in cities and they kept domesticated animals for reasons, right? They kept uh, horses for transportation. They kept cows for milk. They kept pigs to eat refuse off the streets and also to, to slaughter when necessary. Uh, just wide varieties and huge numbers in some cases. Some cities had tens of thousands of horses and pigs and cows even in cities well into the, in some cases, into the early decades uh, of the 20th century. By the time you get to about 1900, 1910, 1920, this uh, move toward cleaning up cities, this Victorian era move towards sanitary cities, uh, public health, public safety, sanitation, uh, all of these movements that occurred during this period ended up moving large numbers of domesticated animals out from cities. And so this idea of this kind of urban barnyard, this kind of urban space that also had large numbers of working and domesticated animals in it, uh, sort of disappeared during this uh, period of the late 19th, early 20th century. Also at that time, animals that were running feral often, like dogs and cats, many of them were rounded up. Some of them were taken into shelters and adopted. Uh, others of them, large numbers were euthanized at that time as well. Leash laws came into practice. Uh, veterinarians got started all over the country. And so there's a huge change in the way people thought about domestic animals. Well, the result of that is that by about 1920 or 1930, cities had fewer animals running around in them than almost ever before, right? The wildlife had been cleared. The domesticated animals, which had numbered in the tens of thousands, they had now been cleared out. And so we had this short period of several decades, beginning around 1920, when there were fewer animals of fewer kinds living in cities in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere than really had ever been there before. One of the weird um, sort of twists of history is that this is the exact moment, particularly in North America, when you get some of the most important figures in American urban planning and design writing about what modern cities should be. And so their idea, and the idea that many of us still have today, about what cities are and what they should be is formed at this exact moment when there are almost no animals around, right? Fast forward now after World War II and you start to get the reappearance of some wildlife that had been decimated decades earlier, coming back into cities or appearing in suburbs in part because of conservation efforts in the countryside and in part because of changes in the cities themselves. And so after World War II, you start to see this a little bit. And then by the 1970s and 80s, people are noticing it on a whole other scale in a whole other way, leading to the situation that we have today. That's kind of funny. I noticed in life, there's a theme that things are not set for the exact moment. Sometimes a person will have a career, their best work will be here. But by the time that they got accolades or awards or something, they're not doing their best work anymore, but that's the timing. Or when things are set up, they're built at a certain moment where it seems good, but then uh, 20, 30 years later, it, it looks like that could not have been a worse time to set things up. But we don't know that ever in the moment. Well, you that's know, funny. Armin, that's, I think that's a, that's a great point in the sense that now that we have uh, a lot of wild animals in cities, and some, in some cases have returned, or shown up for the first time in some places, we don't really have a way of thinking about them and certainly don't have a way of managing them or coexisting with them, living with them, uh, that really works very well, right? A lot of people have been thinking about this, particularly over the last couple of decades, and there's some amazing work going on. I spent the last chapter of the book really talking a lot about that. Uh, but because of this legacy, because of this history, most people were under the assumption that cities really weren't for animals. They weren't for wildlife, 
and they weren't for domesticated animals unless those animals were serving a very particular purpose or were pets, right? And so, uh, you know, this is a legacy. And now that we're in a different place, as you said, we need to maybe rethink uh, the relationship between people and animals in cities, but also really what a city is, you know, is a city a place just for people where every time there's an inconvenient animal that somebody doesn't like, you call pest control and, you know, it gets, uh, it gets eliminated. Um, maybe we need to think of cities as multi-species communities, uh, as habitats that we should be molding and managing to try to enable a variety of species to thrive, to try to discourage the ones that we want fewer of and encourage the ones that we want more of that can actually help us out. There's something great about it. If I go outside, there's some lizards and I'll walk with them and they'll walk away. Or in some areas, there will be, uh, there's this one like island or something that people like to travel to or somewhere where rabbits kind of walk around and people like it. And it's so simple, rabbits walking around, but it's like a, kind of like a, wow, we got that to happen. So you're right, like if there was more of that around, it seems that people's joy often is connected with them being around. And as you mentioned in the material, in the past two years when there was a pullback, especially at the beginning with the virus, animals came and run a, run, ran amok across our, our land, and it looked like if we stopped for a while, maybe 10 years, they would just uh, retake things. How how imposing is the uh, animal culture on us? If we stopped being human for a while, how quickly would everything suddenly be more nature-based? Well, Armin, when you talk about uh, you know large numbers, for example, of uh, Western cottontails, which is what we have in many cities uh, in California and suburbs, um, you know, no one set out to say, we want more cottontails. You know, we want more rabbits in our cities. No one, no one actually did that. Uh, that's the accidental ecosystem, right? That, that's, that's this uh, flowering of, of certain kinds of creatures in certain kinds of spaces that no one set out to do and was unpredicted, but is in part a result of actions that people took often decades ago and often for other reasons. Think about um, the fact that if you go back to the 18th century, uh, in some place like New England, uh, cities had very few trees, very few trees. It was not a practice to plant trees in cities. When, when trees were there, they were often cut down. And as a matter of fact, cities created municipal ordinances prohibiting trees in some cases, and insurance companies would often refuse to insure buildings next to trees because trees were often deemed a fire hazard in cities where most of the buildings were made almost entirely of wood. And so, uh, you know, this was, this was the state of cities at that point. It wasn't until the mid 19th century and late 19th century that people started saying, wait a minute, trees in cities provide us with benefits. They temper the climate, they provide us with shade, they provide us with uh, fresh air, pollution abatement, uh, they clean soils, they do all of these things uh, that having lush, greenery in cities uh, helps people with, right? People weren't thinking about what that would necessarily do for wildlife. A few people thought a little bit about it, but very little. It was really more about what can these plants do for people. It turns out though, that planting trees all over cities, setting aside other uh, new parks, uh, planting trees in medians and along parkways, this created habitat for a variety of species that never would have returned to the city had we not had this development of a canopy of trees in the way that we did, largely for purposes that had very little to do with wild creatures themselves. But you asked another question, which is about the, the pandemic. <laughs> you know, um, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we go back to March and April of 2020, you know, there was this moment where it seemed like um, life was imitating art, right? And many of us had seen movies and read books, you know, we'd seen like uh, 12 Monkeys or, or we'd seen um, uh, other films um, uh, that, that depicted a kind of post-apocalyptic world and nature kind of take, taking back um, uh, over spaces that had been, uh, that had been left, left behind, you know, after some disaster or cataclysm. And so when people started to see animals, running around cities as we were all looking out of our windows, you know, in, in lockdown <laughs> during those early weeks of the pandemic, 
people jumped to a lot of conclusions about what was what was actually going on. You know, was nature uh, showing this incredible resilience and just kind of taking taking the world back uh, in a way uh, that had been predicted by by film and literature um, and other popular culture sources? You know, two years later, we're now looking back on that, and there's been a variety of scientific research that's explored those questions, and uh, the results are, are quite mixed. It seems like the pandemic had very little effect uh, for most creatures on, on birth rates, uh, on fertility, uh, although it may have helped. Uh, there are some examples where some birds may have laid a greater number of eggs, a few other kind of observations uh, from the US and Europe, but it seems like that did not uh, have a major effect on populations. Uh, for most creatures, they actually probably didn't wander around more uh, than they were doing before. There are a few creatures like pumas uh, in some areas that may have but there are a variety of others that probably didn't. Uh, some creatures may have changed their behaviors somewhat. So creatures that had been mostly nocturnal in order to avoid people in urban areas may have become a little bit more um, adventurous during the daytime, uh, during some of those lockdown periods. Uh, but it seems like, you know, a lot of what we were seeing was more a product of changes in our behavior than changes in the behavior or the fertility or the resource, resource use of other animals. And so I think that this is, uh, you know, it, it's a good example um, of the importance of doing rigorous research to try to understand trends in wildlife populations. Uh, and it's important to really, um, you know, think through not only uh, what's happening out there in these environments, but also the way in which people themselves are, are seeing and observing these things and the meanings they're making out of what they think they see. There's a lot of little stories that came out early on where people were having a great time showcasing some deer that they saw or some mountain lion or something. That, that, that's oh right, they certainly were. And you know, you know, I'll say one other thing about that because this is a really interesting topic. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, um, those observations, even if, it was more about like people just looking more and not animals really doing too many different things. Even if that was the case, that would not have been possible decades earlier before the recovery of many of these species that we now see in urban areas. So the trends of the previous few decades suddenly became more visible to people during those early days of the pandemic when they actually keyed into things that had been underway for many years. And so there was this long lead up that, that to some people really became visible in that, that one uh, moment that I know many of us will never, never forget. It's like when you're regularly driving by something, you, what, what is it, who knows? But then when you walk by it one time for the first time, oh, there's flowers here. Oh, this mailbox is interesting. Oh, they have this. But all of it was a blur before. Kind of funny that way. Now, as well, related to the virus, some animals can have diseases or whatnot, maybe bats, other ones can carry them. And as they mix with humans in our cities, are we, are we pushing them too close together with us? Is that a heightening factor or is that not, not an increasing problem? You know, disease, you have to really be careful when you talk about um, disease ecology, right? Because it's extremely complex. Um, the, the, the mathematics of it are quite complex and small changes uh, in the, the population dynamics, the transmissibility, as we know from COVID, can make a big difference in the way that diseases circulate, not only within species, but among species and ecosystems. And so we have to be really careful when we try to make any generalizations about something as mathematically uh, and conceptually complex as disease ecology. Uh, it may surprise your, some of your listeners that a term like disease ecology even exists, uh, but it does. Uh, and so um, it's, a, it's the study of the way that diseases circulate among organisms uh, in their environments. So when we think about disease ecology in urban environments, we should think about a few things. One is that when you have a healthy natural ecosystem with a wide variety of different species in a forest, in a coral reef, in a grassland, uh, in those cases, many pathogens that can cause disease tend to get diluted 
in ecosystems because there are a lot of different kinds of species interacting in complicated ways and diseases aren't usually transmitted very easily between species. And so disease effects in natural ecosystems tend to get dampened or diluted. This is called the dilution effect of having diverse, healthy natural ecosystems. In urban environments, it's a novel ecosystem. It has a lot of animals, but it doesn't have, in many cases, the biological diversity or richness of many natural ecosystems, like a rainforest. So there might be a lot of 10 different kinds of animals, whereas in a rainforest, there might be smaller numbers of 100 different kinds of animals, right? And so in those environments, there are ways in which diseases can spread more easily. Environments that are less diverse biologically tend to facilitate disease circulation a bit more. Uh, environments where there are large numbers of the same kinds of animals living in close proximity to one another can also be spaces where you can get greater disease transmission. And so when you look at a population of organisms um, like uh, crows or pigeons or rats that live in very tightly packed communities, that's one of the reasons they can survive and thrive in urban environments because they tolerate being among large numbers of other animals like them, other members of their species, like us. They're actually like us in that way. Let's get back to that in a second, because that's an important point. Uh, in those cases, diseases can circulate widely throughout populations that are densely packed. And so in urban environments, there are uh, certain properties of animal populations that do tend to lend themselves to being able to circulate diseases. Now, Something you have to realize, though, is that having animals in urban environments also alerts us to disease because people are looking for that. And when they see animals that appear sick, they can be tested, they can be tracked and traced to understand where diseases are coming from or where they might emerge. And there are animals in urban environments that are actively out there consuming other species that could be disease carriers, right? And so when many people hear about diseases circulating among animals, their natural inclination is to say, oh my gosh, we should eliminate the animals. When in fact, the opposite is true. We would be safer in more diverse ecosystems, not less diverse ecosystems. And so let me give you a couple examples. One example is bats. People are very familiar with the fact that bats uh, do potentially carry a lot of uh, different kinds of uh, diseases, including some really potentially gnarly ones. And there are some reasons for that that I discuss uh, in depth in the book that have to do with the amazing, unique biology of bats as the only mammals, mammals capable of true flight, right? And the fact that they fly means that they have to have a variety of physiological adaptations. And these adaptations seem like they also enable bats in some ways to harbor more uh, potential pathogens without actually getting sick themselves from them. But this means that if bats are harboring potential pathogens, then there is the potential to pass them on to people. But when do bats pass pathogens on to people? Bats pass pathogens on to people when people mess with them, when they're up close with them, when they're destroying their habitats, when they're harassing them, uh, when they're making habitats for bats in close proximity to them that can cause, uh, can cause interactions between them, uh, or maybe when they're uh, harvesting bat guano is another case where that could, be, uh, that could be the case as people do in many parts of the world. The flip side of that is that Bats, many bats are insectivorous, meaning that they eat um, largely insects. Not all bats. Bats are a very diverse group, about a thousand species worldwide. But the bats that eat insects are out there every night eating thousands of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are a much greater potential source of many uh, diseases, disease vectors, than the bats themselves. And so the bats are providing people with a direct source of protection against many diseases, including uh, malaria, West Nile virus, all of these other potential uh, uh, pathogens that could be uh, passed uh, by insect hosts or vectors. And so you have to really think about the roles these animals play, about the ways that we interact with them, and not only about the risks they pose, but also about the benefits they provide. Let me give you one other very quick example, and this is a simpler one. Uh, people often put out poisons, rodent poisons, uh, to kill rats and mice. And this is because people often don't like rats and mice. They feel like they're dirty. 
and certainly you don't want them um, getting into uh, your food or into your home, leaving droppings. This can be a potential risk, right? But when people put out poisons for rodents, uh, the poisons that people put out are usually um, blood thinners, anticoagulants, um, uh, and these things are really, really toxic in the environment. They're really dangerous drugs. Uh, they're potentially even dangerous in people when they're used under medical uh, circumstances, so people have to be very carefully monitored when they're using blood thinners oftentimes. But when you put blood thinners out into the environment, it can have a variety of really bad consequences in the ecosystem, including harming animals that eat rats and mice, like, for example, bobcats. Everybody loves bobcats. They're, they're super cute. They're beautiful animals. They don't bother anybody. Uh, and they eat lots of rodents. They're providing us a service, and they don't do anything to us, anything bad. Bobcats are great, right? But we're actually out there killing bobcats by allowing them to ingest rat poisons that we're putting out for the rats. So in a way, we're taking these animals that are providing us not only with beauty and inspiration, but a free service, free labor, eradicating our pests. And what are we doing? We're poisoning them in return. These are the kinds of, kinds of things that we need to be thinking about more clearly if we want to not only preserve wildlife in cities, but if we want to increase human health and human coexistence with wildlife in habitats that we share. It's not the most wise thing we do when we mess with the cascade that can help us in some way. And there's a free service being provided. And here we are saying, nope, we're going to go ahead and cancel that. Even though we like these, but we're going to do this thing. In some studies in Southern California, something like more than 80% uh, percent of bobcats tested have had um, anticoagulant rodenticides in their blood. Um, mountain lions have died of this. Um, coyotes seem a little bit more um, uh, immune to it, but they can be vulnerable. And what often happens is that when uh, carnivores ingest too much of these poisons, they become um, uh, vulnerable to path other pathogens that they would be able to fight off, including mange, which is um, uh, an infection of parasitic mites. And so when a puma ingests too much rat poison from ingesting, from eating rodents that have been poisoned by people, then the puma becomes at risk for mange, which can eventually kill it, right? There's a treatment for that. You can give vitamin K injections, but most pumas don't have uh, the benefit of that kind of veterinary care. And so um, this is something, again, to really, really think about when we think about the complex ways in which human health is tied to ecosystems and wildlife. You made me think of this theme that I have with animals and their interactions such that, let's say, people are often worried about bees when they see them, but from the perspective of the bee, it's a lot of effort to sting us, and they don't really want to be doing that. So uh, it's like an energy, uh, not battle, but comparison between us and them. Same with other organisms that humans might be afraid of or put out poisons to get rid of. But actually, they are much more small and fragile and have limited energy and would rather we leave them be. So it's like we're not fully taking in their view as people? You know, I think that, that one of the things that we often do is we often um, try to treat immediate problems. And when you try to deal with an immediate problem that you perceive, then it's easy to label another organism like a pest. You say, you're a pest, and so we need to control you. We need to get rid of you. Uh, when in fact, I think thinking systemically about how ecosystems work, how relations between different kinds of organisms and ecosystems work, and how those relations affect our quality of life and our health, those kinds of solutions tend to be much more effective and uh, enduring. Here's another example. Under the basic kind of pest control tradition that we have in this country, which is really historically formed most wildlife management in cities has been about pest control. Uh, as opposed to wildlife management out in the countryside, which is more about traditionally conservation, right? So there's a conflict right there. Like, why are we doing pest control here and conservation there? And some pest control out in the countryside, but we don't really 
it's it's kind of a kind of a mixed way of thinking about this, and it, it suggests some some confusion. Uh, but one of the one of the main approaches traditionally to pest control, and pest control is changing a bit in this way, uh, for the better, uh, but only somewhat. One of the traditional approaches is killing animals. If you have a problem animal, you kill it. Uh, you do culling, or you do just uh, direct kill, capture and kill of a single individual. Uh, but there's a problem with this, and that's this. In urban environments, creatures that tend to, to do really well and that can sometimes cause inconveniences or problems for people are often ones that can reproduce pretty quickly. And that's one of the benefits they have that enables them to thrive in cities. Well, when you take an animal out of the environment, what do you do? Well, first of all, it's going to get replaced almost immediately with another one because that's the way the population biology works. And second of all, if you happen to take a dominant animal out of a population, so let's say, for example, that you take um, a dominant coyote uh, out of a population in an area, then what you do is suddenly you've sent the uh, dynamics, the social dynamics in that group into disarray. And when you send the social dynamics into disarray and you increase the fertility, which is a, a response to killing, right? <laughs> then what you do is suddenly you've created a much more unpredictable and dynamic situation with more young individuals who have less experience, probably don't have established uh, territories, um, and are vying for an uncertain future within the social dynamics of that population, that can actually create more problems for people. It creates a less stable population of wildlife that is more likely to cause problems for people, to get into trouble. And so these are things that a lot of folks don't really think about that much, but that are increasingly recognized uh, through research on population biology and also on what human wildlife conflicts, uh, and also hopefully increasingly recognized by managers and by uh, by, by pest control operators who hopefully are moving toward uh, a view not as uh, a service industry for killing problem animals, but thinking about how to manage habitats in a way that prevents conflicts from happening in the first place. A lot of ideas running through my mind. One of them, it makes me think of certain uh, social network dynamics I've read and uh, spoken with the individuals on social networks and how when you take off the top individual, suddenly there's disarray, disorder, because it has to remake itself. It's not as uh, straightforward as would be hoped, like, oh, there will just be a new leader. But on the process of getting a new leader, it's like a punctuated equilibrium. Suddenly we're going to have a, a shock moment of a lot of switches and who's going to adjust and maybe some damage happens. And then the second thing you made me think of was this one lyric, a lot of stuff I think of is, uh, goes to song lyrics about this person who said he was being threatened. He said, okay, well, threaten me, but remember, if you have to replace me, you'll have to also, I'm a family person, so hopefully you'll be taking care of a family as well because we, uh, I represent something here. So a lot of concepts come to mind as you're saying it. You know, some of these, um, these ideas play out differently with different species and um, uh, in particular with, you know, long-lived versus kind of short-lived species. So, you know, skunks only live for a couple of years oftentimes, and, um, you know, the, the social dynamics are very different in that case. But if you think of something like black bears, you know, there's a lot of ski towns and um, suburbs in the American West, uh, and in other parts of the country now, too. Uh, New Jersey has the highest density of black bears in the country now, uh, where black bears, um, you know, are, are around a lot of people, right? And so if you have a black bear that starts to get into trouble, the temptation, because it's a big animal that is potentially dangerous to people, uh, although rarely so, but could in theory be, uh, the temptation is to remove it, uh, to euthanize it, to remove it from the population. The thing is that the, the communities that have had the most success at managing black bear populations in and among lots of people are the communities that have enabled these populations to stabilize as much as possible. So what you don't want is lots of bears dying young and producing lots of other young bears that then die young. That's what you don't want because that's a recipe for conflict with people. Lots of inexperienced animals trying to figure out how to live among lots of people. Recipe for bad, for bad news. What you want 
is you want bears that live a long time, that gain a lot of experience, that learn how to live around people without getting in trouble, and that have a lower fertility rate. That is a recipe for more coexistence and less conflict. It's the opposite of the way things were done for a long time. And it's very hard to make that sell in communities that are already having problems, right? And so, um, and this requires things like investments, investments in infrastructure. You know, you need to protect your garbage <laughs> from animals, right? Things like that. They require actual investments. But in communities that have started to do this, they really have seen a lot, a lot of success, more than one might think. And oftentimes national parks have been testing grounds for this. You know, in, in a place like Yosemite Valley, we might think of that as a, as a national park among the wilderness, but Yosemite Valley is like a ski town, right? Thousands of people there during a summer day. Uh, there are restaurants, there's hotels, there's roads, there's a garbage dump, you know, there's all this stuff. And so they had a lot of the same problems over the years uh, that some towns have had, but they've really focused on this over the last 20 years. They were able to reduce black bear conflicts in Yosemite Valley by more than 90% through a variety of different means uh, that aimed at these goals of stabilizing the population, of encouraging animals to revert to more natural diets, um, of educating people, of securing trash. You know, in cases where people are breaking the law, you've got to give someone a ticket. You know, that's a way to learn. Um, but these are ways to really reduce conflict. It ends up protecting people and saving bears. The amount of themes rolling through my head is a lot. One is uh, that concept of the younger animals makes me think of it's almost like having a bunch of 16-year-olds on the freeway with new vehicles. It's not the recipe for a smooth-flowing freeway versus if you have people with their uh, reasonable cars or such that have been driving for 20 years and it you know, in the morning, rush hour for people to go to work, it's the smoothest thing ever. But if you threw in a bunch of young people just trying, you wouldn't prefer that, let's say. I wish you would have said that to me a year ago, Armin. I would have put that in my book. Oh, I, the amount of ideas. Maybe I should, <laughs> I I should be sending out emails. Like that one is one. Another one is the concept of uh, diversity. Yeah, the idea of... To me, mixing multiple ideas gives you the best potential for uh, understanding like economics meets philosophy meets, uh, let's say, physics. And the same thing is true with organisms. The idea that, okay, we're going to have just these squirrels and we'll clear out these other, quote, problem items is not a winning theme because, one, it's a little actually boring in a way, too. And, two, you are cutting off the mixing between them like the world is very binary i guess kind of like we have squirrels and that's it it's sort of like anti-life in a way almost it seems i yeah. think that the concepts of diversity uh richness um coexistence all these things you know health all these things are related um and I, you know i guess one thing that i would i would really you know if your um listeners were to come away with one thing you know, when we talk about uh, wildlife, when you hear about wildlife in the news, you're often hearing about population declines or animals showing up in weird places. You're hearing little bits of things. But I think that something that, that hopefully COVID has taught us, um, although I, I think that a lot of folks haven't, haven't really keyed into this because so many other things have been going on, is that we really are connected to these creatures in profound ways. Even animals that are half a world away from us, we can be connected to in profound ways. Uh, wildlife exploitation, habitat destruction, the wildlife trade, uh, all of these things, urbanization, um, all of these things have profound effects on the structure and diversity of ecosystems and the animals that inhabit them. And those things can come back to us. You know, in the end, we're all just animals, right? And the fact that we're animals means that we are connected, even in ways that we don't like to think about. We are connected to other creatures. And so the fact that you know, COVID has circulated through, you know, all of humanity in a way, in, in the way that it has, you know, is to me a statement of the fact that we are all connected uh, with with other creatures. And I also, you know, in a, in a related sense, you know, the climate crisis is something that really cannot be addressed and fully uh, solved uh, without thinking about natural ecosystems and wild creatures and their roles in things like carbon cycling and sequestration 
and so all of these things, human health, climate, ecosystems, they're all connected in, in profound ways. And the more we realize that, I think the more we'll start to see that taking the measures to both preserve natural systems where they remain and to cultivate diverse systems in the novel ecosystems where many of us live, like urban areas, these things are all related and investing in them is really, really, um, really sound and really important. Hmm. I have to throw this one in because this is one I was curious about, but it never uh, came back to it. Last one here is slightly related. On the planet, if you look on the globe, all the most popular places on the planet are little inlets into the land. Like you look at the side land, it's like a little inlet and that's like the hubs and the hot spots. How is that related to why are an all animals wanting to go? Is it more like surface area to water for the view and, and the experience or what is so likable? Well, so, you know, before I was kind of talking about ecotones, right? And, and so spaces where different systems meet are places that tend to be rich. So like, look at New York Harbor, right? We talked about that before. Marshes, tidelands, forests, ocean, river, uh, bay, you know, all of these kinds of spaces all kind of coming together in this way to make homes for a lot of different kinds of species and um, to provide a rich environment. Globally, humanity largely lives uh, along the coast. Uh, and so most of the biggest cities in the world are along ocean coastlines. Um, a huge proportion of the Earth's population lives along an ocean coastline, uh, depending on exactly how you find that, 50 or 100 miles or so from the coast. Uh, and so those coastlines, it's really not about the view, although in some places, you know, if you look at tourist economies, that's certainly a draw. Uh, but traditionally, that's been more about uh, resources, um, trade, access, uh, these sorts of things that enable those places uh, to grow or provide uh, meeting places, crossroads, not just among many different kinds of wildlife species, but for people as well. And so the ocean coastlines, particularly places where rivers and wetlands and bays and marshes and open oceans meet, those are places that have fostered wildlife and biological diversity for eons and that foster um, economic and cultural diversity today. And so that's just another, uh, another example. Can I add one more thing, Armin? When people see animals in cities, oftentimes, sometimes that they don't really like that much, like you know, rats, and pigeons, and animals like this, um, sometimes they get a little grossed out, right? Ooh, a rat, you know, pizza rat. You know, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with that. That's, um, that's, that's gross, you know, that's disease or that's filthy or whatever. But if you think about why some creatures live uh, in cities and thrive there, what are some of the reasons that have been proposed? Well, uh, if you look at creatures that are, that reach uh, abundances in cities that are higher, higher population densities than in natural environments, uh, they're often creatures that um, are omnivorous. They're often creatures that are curious and learn new behaviors and that pass them down to their young. They're often creatures that care for their young. They're creatures that uh, can feel comfortable being around people and also being around large numbers of other members of their own species. Some people have even suggested that some of these animals have relatively large brain sizes compared to other animals in their group, in their taxonomic group. That's up for some debate. But the idea there is that creatures that are able to experiment with things and try new things sometimes can do well in cities because cities propose novel or pose novel opportunities that aren't available in natural ecosystems. And so if you can figure those out, then that's a really good thing. But Armin, if you add all this stuff up together, what does that sound like? Real package deal right there. It sounds like people. <laughs> Here's the thing. People hate to look at rats in cities, but the reason rats are successful in cities is because they're a lot like us in basic biological and ecological ways. And you don't have to look further than that than to realize that you know rats are used as a model organism for biomedical science. That's an obvious thing. But rats are also successful in cities uh, and pigeons too because they have these qualities, these basic biological qualities that make them a little bit like us. And so maybe that's a source of a little bit more empathy 
and compassion for the creatures that we share our habitats with. A link between all of us, us humans, animals, down to an amoeba, or even maybe plant life and whatnot. The connection to something. And when we disregard the connection, we always get penalized because it's something there. You can't push away what's there. You're resisting the truth of reality in a way. Professor Peter S. Alagona, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode, describing a bit from the accidental ecosystem and giving us a sense of some items of geography, history, and the animal life that is around our cities. Thank you so much, Armin. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you. Glad to have you on. And we are out. <laughs>